0: Welcome to Adapt Nation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today we are joined by psychologist, author, and mental health advocate Jeremiah Ossitutu. Jeremiah kindly accepted the offer to help us tackle a couple of really important but difficult topics living with mental health disorders, and how to emotionally and mentally navigate the COVID-19 pandemic crisis. As we are all experiencing, modern life has stopped as we know it. We are having to adapt to a very different way of living. And the effects of these changes will be significant and long-lasting. We need strategies for handling today, tomorrow, and the next year or so. So back to our guest. Jeremiah has had a super interesting life, which you will get to hear about shortly. But he has also suffered in ways that most of us cannot even conceive. His successful and eventful life spiraled out of control emotionally and mentally in 2015, which eventually led to a diagnosis of schizophrenia. You will get to hear all about the darkness of his condition, the cascading and worrying effects it can have on your life and the damage. Antidepressant and antipsychotic drugs can have on your mental and physical well-being. Jeremiah bravely opens up to his dark and suicidal experiences and how with therapy he now has a strong purpose to continue life and powerfully contribute to all of our mental well-being. Given his unique experience of both sufferer, educator and counselor, we're in kind and capable hands as we explore his journey. And how to think and act during this life-changing coronavirus pandemic and the social and economic impacts it is and will have on our lives. This was such an enjoyable and deeply reflective episode for me and hopefully it will be the same for you too. And whilst I don't have a diagnosed mental health condition, I can relate to much of what Jeremiah explains as the human condition is one of suffering, one of darkness and light. There is a lot of hope and practicality offered in this interview. Jeremiah's observations are astute. His perspective is real and it works. He's proof of it as he is highly functioning in spite of his severe condition. I tell you what, it gives me hope that with taking his guidance and advice, we not only will cope with this crisis, but we'll have the opportunity to reinvent ourselves strip away the unnecessary, and truly define the minimal things we need to be happy and joyful. If this discussion resonates with you as much as it did me, please help others find the show by leaving a five-star rating or review in your podcast app and tagging us in your social media feed, whether it be in Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. You can check out the full show notes of this episode by clicking the link within the description of this episode. It's time to enjoy this one, guys. We've got Jeremiah Tutu on Emotionally Handling the COVID-19 Pandemic and Living with Schizophrenia. Adaptation. So guys, we are recording this episode on the 1st of April 2020. By the time you hear it, it might be a few weeks later. But not that I need to remind you or the world, but we are in what should i say is a, a very deep and profound crisis the coronavirus global pandemic and modern life has stopped as we know it we're adapting to a very different way of living and for many i'd say that's hard that's really really hard and for sure some people might be seeing some light in this darkness whether it be nature breathing a sigh of relief uh seeing the deeper care and generosity shining through between our healthcare service providers and just generally people being a bit more compassionate and empathetic to others. We may be seeing or or reflecting deeply on our priorities and lifestyles and thinking, have we been pushing too hard and too fast? And that this event may spark off perhaps an auto-correction that a better human existence will arise once the dust has settled. All that being said, though, we are in a very difficult time. This is hard for us emotionally. So today, I thought it would be valuable to explore that darkness of this current global crisis through the lens of the emotionally vulnerable, and how we should think about supporting those people, and how we can help ourselves amidst, this, amidst the chaos. So to help us do that, we have the public speaker, author, mental health advocate, psychologist, and deeply reflective, Jeremiah Tutu. Welcome to the show, Jeremiah. I'm so excited to be speaking with you today.
1: Thank you, and you too.
0: um, We've known each other for a while, but Mm -hmm. it's been a bit of a hiatus, to say the least. We haven't spoken to each other for an awfully long time.
1: 15 years.
0: 15 years, wow. (laughs) (laughs) And and during that time, you quite clearly have transformed and gone through quite the journey. Before we get into that journey, Jeremiah, it would be great to give the audience a quick sense of who you are today. So we can level set and then maybe we can start peering into your past a little.
1: Okay. Um, So I think the easiest way to categorize what I'm doing today is um, advocating for mental health. So I'm currently writing my second book, um, which is titled Let My Eyes Understand, which um, provides a in-depth perspective as to some very complex um, mental health um, illnesses such as schizophrenia, which I've been recently diagnosed With, but um, I also uh, have pursued a career in psychology, which is slightly different from my background, which is fashion. Um, And I do public speaking. So,
0: okay, great. Well, a very interesting and diverse collection Mm, of vocations and interests. Um, I I knew you as uh, you know the fashion man way back when. (laughs) When we were working together, Um, I'm guessing you haven't completely. Um, fallen off of the the fashion bandwagon. Is that still an important part of your life?
1: No. So um, it's still very much part of who I am as an individual. I don't think one can ever separate themselves from um, the most integral part of their identity. But um, I will be pursuing a master's starting in September in psychology applied in fashion. So um, that would be my return and hopefully the publication which I am due to publish my area will be focused not just on publishing but writing about um, the psychology of fashion in current contemporary society
0: wow and there are there are uh, degrees and ways in which to study that specific quite niche area
1: yes master's so I'll be starting at the London College of Fashion in September
0: wow that's really interesting really interesting because they are absolutely intertwined aren't they
1: Yes, the first in the world. So I'm very happy that um, I was uh, offered a position to partake in the uh, master's degree.
0: Fantastic. Good stuff. Well, um, let's maybe try and open up, and I, I don't know how long this is going to take, and mm. quite frankly, it will take as long as it needs to, but I'd love to understand um, your emotional, mental and spiritual journey a little, because it has been quite, quite the journey. Mm-hmm. Over the last... 15 years or whatever kind of period you wanted to reflect on you've spoken about being recently diagnosed with a mental health uh condition schizophrenia i'm not Mm. very familiar uh with that condition and what that would feel like but um maybe you can give us a sense of the the realization or the um experience of struggling with some mental health issues so we can we can walk through your journey through your through your steps? And then I'm I'm sure there'll be some questions along the way. But where do you want to start with that, Jeremiah?
1: Um, I think what would help perhaps your listeners understand is perhaps where I was before this happened. So for instance, much like everybody else, I had pride, you know, I thought I was the last chip in the bag and I was naive to the idea that anything such as uh, a mental health disorder could actually impact my life. So I didn't really know too much about mental conditions, um, only until 2015, but prior to that, I'd always believed that I had a very, um, open mind. I was knowledgeable in anything that would provoke my curiosity, but unfortunately I, didn't, I knew very little about, uh, mental health issues such as schizophrenia. So when did, when this did actually occur in 2015, it completely uh, changed my entire life. And also my perspective of myself. Um, when you ask about emotional impact, it is still something that even in contemporary times, which I'm still currently working on because one doesn't ever in my personal view, especially with those who are speaking to fully ever reconcile, um, going through an illness such as schizophrenia. I listened to one of your podcasts, um, I believe with the gentleman who was diagnosed with cancer. Mm -hmm. Logan Sneed. Exactly. And I was very touched by hearing his story. Um, I thought it was a great podcast. The difference between um, he and, well, his experience and mine is that he's one started and ended. Mine starts and ends every single day. And it does the same with everybody who has um, an illness such as schizophrenia or bipolar. They relive that experience every single day um, in different ways as well, because it's such a complex uh, disorder. So it does not only impact you from a psychological perspective, but emotional and social. Um,
0: Are you able to give us a a bit of a um, textbook description or characterize what schizophrenia is for our listeners? And for me, quite frankly, because I'm I'm a little naive.
1: That's okay. So schizophrenia has three different um, conditions. You have the positive, negative, and cognitive. So the positive aspect, um, somebody who has positive symptoms would experience um, hallucinations, auditory um, hallucinations as well, um, delusions, paranoia, um, and olfactory. And that happens where someone can taste or smell something that doesn't exist. Um, there's more conditions with, with that as well, but with negative symptoms, it, it would include things like some insomnia, insomnia, hypersomnia, lack of motivation, chronic fatigue. Um, cognitive can in, can involve um, lack of concentration, memory impairment. I mean, there's so many um, symptoms that are um, involved with schizophrenia. It's it's really amazing to be sincere. It's very intriguing, very very intriguing
0: and uh, emotionally Mm. what is that experience on a i mean is it episodic do you have have periods of darkness and periods of light How, how how can you help me try and understand what a day in the life of someone who's going through this how they feel
1: you see it's okay i'll try to answer to the best i can so it really does depend on what your symptoms are. So, for example, if you are going through uh, positive symptoms and you are hallucinating, for example, I had, unfortunately, the experience only last week and the emotion at that time was fear because of what I had perceived. Then, for, for, for example, there are emotions, there are times where, for example, I'm speaking to you now, my symptoms are minimal. So um, I feel almost like myself. But then there's also an element of fear as well, because I know that this is an acute period It's not going to last forever. And then when my symptoms does increase, my emotional state is sadness, because I had a taste of normality for a moment. And I'm back to my, uh, my conditioned life, if I can say that, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So it changes frequently. Um, I think for me as an individual, I'm quite, uh, I intellectualize my emotions a lot. So I separate um, my emotions from myself. I process them slightly differently. And this is what has been evident in my therapy or my psych with my psychiatrist or my therapist. I tend to intellectualize my, my emotions in order for me to not be influenced by them. So I'd like to control myself rather than being controlled by emotions. So, but I do recognize there are times in which I do, I can sense fear, um, and I can sense sadness, whereas before, um, before this happens, I was slightly more robotic. Um, I wouldn't allow myself to, um, or I wouldn't allow myself to be exposed to what I was feeling.
0: Okay. Okay. I can, un- I can understand how um, having the taste of quote unquote normality mm. um, and having that ripped away because your emotional state has changed, that that must be quite hard to deal with. I, mean, I think in, in micro doses, we probably all feel that at times, right? We have good days and we have bad days. We have days where we feel in control and we have days where we feel completely out of control emotionally mm. and uh, psychologically. Um, so What I'm hearing is almost like something that is experienced by all, but of course the severity um, and ability to control it and other symptoms that exist beyond the kind of emotional state, clearly what what defines schizophrenia from just normal life. But is it not an expression of the normal undulation of emotions just gone a bit haywire?
1: Yes, I think... I mean, that's a very good point that you make. I think to one extent, one could level that argument and say, well, it is just an extreme uh, variation of the everyday life. Where I would argue against that is with the average person, to some extent, they have choice. And to some extent, they dictate the outcome of their emotional or psychological thoughts. In this case, people with schizophrenia and um, severe illnesses, like for example, bipolar, they are dictated too. So it's the mind that's dictating to you. So for instance, I, w- I used to be very militant with my work. I used to follow a spreadsheet and say, okay, between nine, and 9.15, I'm going to be doing this between 9.15 and 9.30 break. And then from 9.30 to 11 o'clock, I'm doing it. So I'm very, very militant with my academic studies or my professional work. However, even as militant as I am, I am dictated to by my condition. So it tells me what it's prepared to do. And that's that's contingent on this the level of my symptoms. So that also dictates how I feel each morning, emotionally and psychologically. So I think the only difference is is that to some extent, the average person, a person who doesn't have any conditions, can dictate what they want to do. That shouldn't suggest that people should be afraid of people who have illnesses and that we are um, out of control. That's not the case. What I'm trying to say is that there's an element of choice that, for example, you would have that I would not.
0: That's interesting that it's very interesting because someone who d- lacks the empathetic understanding of of this would only would can only draw on my conclusions as me as an individual, mm. and my experiences my experiences say at times I don't feel in control at times mm. I feel that i am um, I know better, but nonetheless I still fall into a moment of darkness not. Mm. not really dark darkness let's be clear but a moment of a lack of control Mm. um so i I, i'm not countering your argument that i have perhaps more agency than you do around my emotional state because i I, I think that's valid but i don't have complete agency i I at times can feel out of control around Mm. how i am perceiving the world and how i'm perceiving my performance my you know my gratitude all of that can be really off at times and it requires you know systems process awareness uh and interrupts really to kind of combat that i mean let's let's talk about that how do you how do you manage this is it is it is it is it via medication is it via um therapy is it via some kind of rituals and process and interrupts talk to me how this condition's put in a box as best it can
1: be So I elected to stop taking medication after five months. And that was, um, by virtue of the side effects of the medication, what I noticed, what were
0: were the meds? Sorry.
1: Oh, so I wasn't antipsychotics. Um, actually at the time I wasn't antipsychotics and antidepressants because initially I assumed it was depression. Well, I was told it was psychotic depression, then it was psychosis. So I actually wasn't diagnosed. Um, for more than a year and a half because when I became unwell it was November 2015 but I didn't go to see anybody until September of 2016 so when I had my first initial assessment in September 2016 it was diagnosed as psychotic depression it was only diagnosed as schizophrenia I believe around may or june of 2017 okay so between september of 2016 and uh, february or the end of january i was taking both anti um antidepressants and um antipsychotics
0: with and with the goal of those medications doing what in particular is it is it working at a neurotransmitter level you know working on serotonin uptake and that kind of thing do you know at a medical level what or at a biological level what these things are doing and why they're effective
1: so with um antipsychotics what its objective is is to reduce the serotonin in the brain um what they suggest is that people who have schizophrenia have too much serotonin in the brain or an imbalance of chemical um chemicals and chemicals in the brain, in the mind. So in essence, what that did for me at the time, it was that it did, after several months, reduce some of my positive symptoms. So in this case, the hallucinations and the, um, I tend to call them the distorted thoughts rather than paranoia, but then it made my other conditions, um, or new conditions even worse. For example, I put on a significant amount of weight. Now, if you take into consideration that my background is fashion so weight my the way in which i dress and my body shape is of importance so i went from 10 and a half stone to 14 stone so i couldn't fit in my clothes and that alone made me depressed um i could i was sedated continuously i um at the time in i believe august of 2016 until november I was writing a speech for a client who was presenting on Ted talks in Slovenia. As a result of the medication, I forgot how to read and write. So to do that, it took me very, very long to that was coming. Actually, I started to lose that um, ability towards the end of when I was writing that speech. But by January, I forgot how to read and write. I couldn't walk in public. Wow. I developed severe social anxiety, so I couldn't leave the house. And when I did, for example, if I wanted to get food, I would have to go at two a.m. in the morning to our twenty-four hour Tesco, where there would be nobody. And even just the implied um, presence of somebody, I would lose the ability to walk. Um, so there were so many things that it had uh, caused. Right. And that, and so just I,
0: be clear that 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 wasn't part of your personality, your identity. Absolutely prior, not, right? Because I, no. I, I, I definitely don't know you as that. I, I know you as a quite a, a, an outgoing uh, bubbly charismatic individual i know it's 15 years ago but that that was mm-hmm. the jerry or the jeremiah that i knew so that's um it's quite a quite a stark difference in par- character and personality
1: absolutely and for Two years after that, I was saying to my medical team, "Oh, something has changed in the way I speak. I wasn't able to process my thoughts as quickly as I was before." But continuously, I was being told, "Oh, but you speak perfectly. You're very eloquent. You can articulate, articulate yourself in so many ways that many people cannot." Until they did a uh, psychological testing in, uh, I believe in. July of 2018, for four months. And it proved that as a result of the medication or my symptoms as well, that my IQ had dropped and, and there was something had happened to my working memory. So, everything I had been saying two years prior to that, everybody had ignored until another psychologist did a testing and it proved that what I was saying was true. Yeah. The medication had impacted me. So, but going back to your question, I stopped taking medication. By virtue of the fact of these symptoms, but also because I believe that it is better for anybody to understand the underlying issues behind any mental disorder or psychological disorder, so, for example, depression, for example, than to substitute that knowledge with medication. If there is an understanding of what's causing you to feel a certain way, it enables one to develop the right tools to challenge that or conquer that should that problem arise in the future. So I elected to do therapy and I spent a year in therapy, um, which to be sincere without the assistance of my therapist and my mental health team, I don't think I'd be anywhere near where I am today.
0: And what kind of therapies are we talking about? Are we Are talking about CBT? What, what was the approach of um yeah, having you explore um really what's going on and trying to you know create some controls and ways of you know navigating it.
1: so I um underwent cognitive behavioral therapy, but although I've only been academically trained in psychology in the last few years, I've always read articles of psychology. So I almost did psychology on myself when I wasn't with my therapist. for example, exposure therapy, so i would go out a bit longer just so I can get used to being out in public. So, but with my therapist, um, we did cognitive behavioral therapy.
0: Okay, okay. And wh- how was how was that effective? Like em- emotionally, how did that? What what kind of release did it give? Again, I'm speaking from a naive perspective, Jeremiah. I've I've not gone through therapy myself, but I would actually love to because I believe. We all would, we all could benefit from understanding ourselves a little more. Um, but how, how was that beneficial? Was it was it pulling out, you know, past experiences? Was it exposing world views that you've held onto that have now kind of corrupted, you know, the way in which you see the world? What what were the kind of like aha moments that really helped make that progressive and valuable?
1: Well, I think you, you see. I just want to be clear in in different interventions, we would be, would be beneficial to different people. So for me, psychological intervention, as opposed to a biological one was most effective. But with my therapist, um, for me, I'm speaking just for myself in this uh, particular scenario, I did become depressed. Um, it put me in a, this whole experience, especially in 2017 had put me in a place that I was un- that I was unfamiliar with because I'd just been told that I wouldn't be able to work again. And that if I was ever to work, it would have to be something very simple for instance, working in a call center, not suggesting that it's an easy job, but coming from somebody who had some businesses, uh, was publishing to then be told that they would not be able to work again. I went into a very, very dark place. Mm. So what David, um, my therapist at the time did for me was to put me in the right direction because I became directionless. That's why I was depressed. I didn't know what I could do. Okay. I've just been told I can't work. I've just been told I have a severe illness. That's going to be with me for the rest of my life. Okay. So where do I go and what do I do? And what David reminded me continuously, in my uh, therapy sessions, um, which I actually write in my book, he said to me, you know, you used to be an advocate when you were growing up for people who experienced discrimination. You've always talked about how much you loved psychology. So why don't you pursue a psychological course? um, Or as you used to be an advocate, so why not uh, volunteer for a, a a charity. And I kept saying, no, no, I'm too tired because the medication had, it took a lot of time for it to wear off me. Uh, I kept saying, I can't, I'm too tired. I'm too tired. I don't think I'm that motivated. Although at that point I had already um, signed up to a university to do psychology, but I hadn't confirmed the offer. Mm. So he kept saying to me, you know, so, you know, you are an advocate, you know, you used to like, you, your values are to help people, you know, so, he made me think about that. And then one day, this was actually, I believe, in. June, I think it was August, actually. I won't forget. It was August. Um, he said that to me again. He said, Oh, you know, Jeremiah, you know, you used to be an advocate. You know, you've spoken about your values, how much you like to help people. Um, and so, what about you doing something that will make you feel better? And Perhaps This was perhaps maybe the 11th time you said that, but it was in that moment I woke up and I thought, hold on, actually, I know what I could do. I remember uh, back in 2009, I was working on a publication which looked at um, current affairs from a psychological perspective. So I thought, hold on, if I go back to um, school and study psychology, what I can then do is start this publication and that will help people. And in addition to that, I went to volunteer for the Samaritans. So to conclude, what David did for me was to put me in a direction and then from there, well, it helped me develop the right tools and right to move in the direction which I wanted to do so and then from there developed the steps in order for me for me to get to my objective, in essence, to where I am today. Okay. I'm not sure if that makes no, sense. No,
0: it, it makes perfect sense. Um, offering direction and purpose. Uh, you know, an mission to someone's life can be profound. Um, doesn't sound like psychology or therapy per se, though. That's life coaching. Um, mm. Would Would you say that there's kind of similarities between between you know the wisdom of helping someone understand how to do life generally, and how to enjoy life, and how to add value, and and through adding value feel purposeful and worthy how that you know is intertwined to the what we typically know as therapy which is understanding yourself and understanding how your brain operates and understanding what wiring happened previously that may have may cause you to have these exacerbated feelings I'm just trying to understand like is is that one of the same in your eyes do you see both of those you know being part of the therapy um, uh, the therapist job?
1: I, I I think you answered it yourself. To be honest with you, I would say that a life coach teaches you how to do life, whereas a therapist teaches you how to understand life.
0: Okay. Okay, that's interesting. Say more. Mm.
1: Oh, if you want to add to that,
0: yeah. Say more, man. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> put put that in more. Oh, wait, actually, no, let, let let me rephrase my question. Let's let's get there in a little more of a pointed direction. So. Uh, where where does does life guidance end mm. and where does therapy begin? Because I can I can see the value and utility whether I'm speaking to my kids or someone that I know or a work colleague in offering direction and seeing people's eyes light up when they feel that there is there is an answer to their question, which is what do I do? How do I do it? But that's very different to, I'm struggling with myself, and I can't understand myself.
1: Yes, but just, just to um, highlight that point, a, a therapist's role is not to advise or encourage you, but to help you change the behaviors that are disruptive in order for you to get to where you want to go. So for instance, I don't know too much about life coaching, I do have two friends who are life coaches, but... I believe that their role would be to motivate you to, to, for example, if I said I wanted to write in a new book, they would motivate me in doing that. Whereas if I said to my therapist, you know, I have disruptive behavior, for example, I smoke too much and drink too much. They would help me understand what factors contribute to that behavior and then what I could do to change that. So I think the two roles are different. I would say, whereas the 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 role of a counsellor and a life coach would be more similar than as opposed to a a psychologist or therapist and a life coach.
0: Yeah. Okay. No, that's good distinction. Appreciate that, Jeremiah. Um, There's one one other question now. I just kind of want to give a little bit more kind of colour to before we move into uh, the the, the, the broader topic of today, which is, you know, the pandemic crisis we're dealing with and dealing with that emotionally, which is, Mm. I have a tendency to be a little like you, intellectualize um, and not necessarily draw enough empathetic emotional storytelling in someone's experience. And it sounds like you do some you do something similar. So you're you're withholding some of that kind of raw emotion. Maybe is self-protection, maybe it's just the way in which you operate, Jeremiah. But um help the audience get a sense of <sighs> I don't know like you talk about diagnosis of something or an acknowledgement of something in twenty fifteen, but I guess it was a a gradual unknowing of self a gradual um lack of direction, a gradual feeling of malaise and struggling with emotional contentment. Help us understand that kind of evolution of your feeling from being someone who I guess at some point didn't really experience darkness to then someone who it a a kind of faster and faster clip was growing uncertain with life like help us just understand that journey a little bit more if that's possible
1: so if if i've understood your what your what your question is is to describe in terms of the evolution from coming becoming or being somebody who didn't actually was quite privileged in essence having not experiencing anything that was life-altering to going through something that changed my life
0: yeah cuz I'm guessing it was it was a journey right it wasn't just flip of a switch like in one year everything just turned on its head or maybe it was like I'm I'm trying to understand when there was at least some awareness that you were struggling with emotional control and what that felt like
1: see that's it's interesting because I was actually thinking about that yesterday And as I mentioned earlier during the um, conversation, it was actually in November um, of 2015 where I um, said to a friend of mine, um, her name is Kayla, I said, something isn't right. And uh, she wanted me to divulge more. And I said, I don't know what it is, but something isn't right. And she then in turn said to me, um, something isn't right with me either. And lo and behold, she had a tumor and I developed schizophrenia. But the reason why I said that something isn't right. And as I mentioned earlier on in the um, conversation in the past, when something would not be right, I would say to myself, okay, well, I acknowledge that something is wrong. Pick any song, pick the saddest song you want in your Spotify playlist, listen to it. And I would, embody that sadness for that song and then that's it that would be it and that's how i've dealt with anger and that's how i dealt with sadness if every emotion that's how i'd often do it if it was fear okay i've seen something that absolutely petrifies me or i'm in a situation that scares me i say okay well embody it and then that's it and i'll put it in a drawer in my mind and that'll be it and i'll move forward but during this particular time in November, I think I believe it could have actually been the end of October, or starting November. I kept trying that because it wasn't just a case of how I was feeling, but it was also my inability to be productive. So I said, okay, well, I've tried this three minutes. It didn't work. Okay. So let me try two days. Two days came, didn't work. I was still feeling really, really bad and my symptoms were getting worse. Okay. So I said, like, okay, well, I'll try again in a week one week became two weeks, two weeks became uh, three weeks. And I said, okay, well, it can't be any more than a month. I need to put myself uh, back on track. I need to sort out my uh, psychological issues. And very often I tend to write everything. So I never leave anything in my head. Uh, I either verbalize it or I would write it down. So everything was written. I said, okay, well, this is what has happened or this is what's made me feel like this in the last uh, month, this is where I am and this is where I need to be. So I drew a map, as like I said, this is where I need to get to. Unfortunately, that map was fruitless because I continued to get more and more and more and well. And as a result of my symptoms, but also my psychological and emotional um, st- state of mind or state at that time, I then to- Began to exhibit uh, disruptive behavior, um, severe disruptive behavior. And I actually write about this in my article, The Invisible Injury. So it took from 2015 uh, to even now, as I speak to you, to try to rectify that. Because during that period, I'll say from 2015 until t- 2018, I had exposed myself to. Behaviors or thoughts that were non-existent to me before, and as a result of that, I've had to continuously work um, individually on all of them in order to change them, or, or in order to change my perspective of things. Because that small gap in my life, those two two and a half years, have in essence rewritten almost thirty-five years. So as I speak to you today, I'm continuously working on them. I have a board in the back of my door where I tick each day where these behaviors or these thoughts, um, do not, um, emerge or okay. I've made an effort to try to counteract them because psychologically they say you can change a behavior after six weeks. Unfortunately, uh, for some of them, uh, they're still persistent. So. Um, I'm not sure if that really answers your question. I hope it does, um, but if you want, I can divulge more. No,
0: no, that that really does, and I appreciate your honesty and, and vulnerability, Jeremiah. And perhaps my, you know, uh, working through my clumsiness of trying to explain what's going through my head. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, let me ask. Uh, hopefully, not not a too dark question. Um, has there been moments of existential crisis? Have there been uh, moments of considering? either taking your life or not seeing the point of life
1: yes there has been um and I believe this is the first time I've actually ever admitted that um outside my therapy <laughs> outside my uh therapy sessions yes there there was um and that was first in July of 2000 and Uh, 16. This is before I was diagnosed. So a big part of um, me getting diagnosed actually happened through um, some events that transpired between July and August. And that was being, um, I went to a sanctuary called the tree in London, where they accommodate people who are suicidal. So it's not an institution. It's people where people go voluntarily. They go through a tremendous amount of assessments. So I went through a lot of assessments before I was even accepted to go in there. And I went there voluntarily. And what precipitated that was I wrote and I wrote, uh, I, I, again, as I mentioned, I like to write, I write everything, but I I was writing um, a creative piece titled the forever sleep. And if I can say so myself, it's perhaps my best piece of work. It has not been seen, um, but it will be featured in my book. And what I realized as I was writing that is that I was actually writing a suicide letter or, but in a creative way to my family. So when I realized that it then, put me obviously in depression because there are obviously underlying factors that were contributing to me writing that piece. And this is why I said, it's very important for people to understand the underlying factors rather than just taking medication. Mm-hmm. So I contacted Dimitri and I said, okay, look, um, this is what, um, I'm thinking and feeling, but this was, sorry, this was after a few weeks, so I don't want you to imagine that i started writing this and then I called them, no. This was after a few weeks when things were getting worse. So um, we did a number of assessments and then they told me to come down um, for a face-to-face um, interview, in essence, to make sure that I wasn't just some random person just wanting free accommodation. And I begged them, can you please do it the telephone? So they agreed and they did. Um, and they said, yes, please come. You'll stay here for five days. And that was it. However, I must clarify this. I've always been, um, an advocate for, um, physicians to suicide. So I always said that people deserve the right to die when they want to die. So I've had this argument for many, many years in the past. So. And I want to especially I want to clearly highlight that this wasn't an emotional um, decision that I was making at the time. And it's important, as I, uh, to highlight because it's it was very impactful during my stay with the matrix. Because when I was at the matrix, there were two people there. There was just myself and a lady from Bristol. She was a mother and uh, and a wife. She was very emotional. She wanted to pursue suicide and she had only six sessions with either volunteers, psychiatrists or therapists, only six. I had 19. And the reason why I had 19 is because they would, my argument for me wanting to end my life was logical, not emotional. Mm -hmm. So after the first person who I had a a, a session with, she, i got, I've actually got all the notes because I want to include it in my book. Um, So I I submitted a subject access request. So I have all of the notes, but after each session, they would say this person, Jeremiah is very intellectual. Um, He intellectualizes his emotion. He's using logic to justify why he wants to kill himself. So then the next session I would have, I would have another conversation and that person would not be able to convince me otherwise. In fact, my argument was always stronger. So they kept calling people who were not even on the rotor to doing shifts. Um, at one, one point, I think it's probably about my 16th session, they contacted this gentleman. I will never forget what he said. He said, look, um, they've called me here to speak with you. Um, so I've only got an hour left. And so let's talk. We spoke for an hour and 45 minutes. And at the end of it, he said, I've never spoken to someone. I've never tried so hard and not got anywhere. Um, and another, and I, and another, another, and another therapist said to me, she got frustrated. She says, I'm trying to get you not to understand, but you understand too much. Jeez. So the point I was trying to make was that yes, there have been, uh, moments. And I'm sure there will be moments where I will feel that way, but it's not because I'm of my emotional state. For me, I consider as, okay, do you know what? I've achieved beyond what I thought I would have achieved in this life. I started a fashion label. I started magazines. I've written books. I did my TED talk, which I did last year. So for me, I'm satisfied. So I continuously have to weigh up, okay, look, this is what it's going to really be like for the rest of my life. These symptoms are really severe. I don't really know if it is not, I wouldn't say worth it, but rather, I don't know if I would be too sad if I wasn't here and bear in mind, I volunteer for the Samaritans. Um, so (laughs) it's, it's, it may sound like a hypocrite, but I speak to people all the time who call and say, Oh, you know what? I'm really, really sad. I want to end my life, but they are being impacted by their emotions. I am not. And at the time I was not. And this is why I had nineteen sessions as opposed to eighty having six, because my my logic towards how I wanted to perhaps end or continue my life was based on how I was thinking, not how I was feeling. And when you do have a condition such as schizophrenia, and which has such a high suicide rate, one continuously has to evaluate is this how I want to live the rest of my life with medication or without medication? To be sincere, it's equally as bad. Mm. So, um, I hope that answers the question.
0: More than I would have expected. And I I just want to like pause and just say, thank you. You're more than welcome. Deeply thank you because I'm perhaps, you know, a little bit, um, crudely asked you a question. Wasn't sure if um, it was appropriate Probably wasn't, but the fact you've you've gone there and exposed that part of your life, I, I'm deeply appreciative because I think, no, I, think I think there's relevance there, man. Um, what I would I just kind of try and wrap a bow around this you, you you're using logic to define whether there is value. There's a risk reward, or there's you know the, the pro con benefit mm. of of you hanging around for you and others, and and you know you were making the de- the decision that there's there's more. Cons. then there are pros I guess or life's done life's you know you've achieved what you need to achieve uh kind of um uh, paraphrasing a little bit but at some point I guess you were convinced to think differently how how did that come about
1: I think okay so this was before I met David there was another incident also in 2017 and the one in 2017 was perhaps more um I came closer because without going into too much detail, let's just say I became, I was closer, it, it, it was just a question of pressing a button that would have right. been it. And that would have been it. Um, and I think, I mean, let's be honest, I'll be open and honest. The only reason why it didn't happen at that time was because I wasn't completely convinced if what I had would do it and the way in which I think I'm very methodical. So for instance, I had to go to the post office, send the letters in second class post, I had to do this, I had to do it. So I followed a list and I thought to myself, okay, well, if I booked this hotel and then I go to the post office and this one a tool doesn't work, I've, I murdered everybody else around me because they're going to know exactly what I did and it'll make it worse because i will be alive. And then fortunately for me, David, it was a conversation before in, sorry, after that, I had a conversation with David and where he said, you know what, um, you are an advocate, you know, you have all these values to help people. And then I started thinking, okay, well, actually, this is the direction in which I want to move in. So it was actually that conversation that saved my life. He,
0: was, a- he was able to describe um, a set of a value, a value that you can bring that the world needs.
1: That yes, was bigger than you. Because just before, because I need to be clear, during those two weeks in 2017, he had gone on holiday. And I had, he had given me a book to read um, because it was quite known within the NHS that I was, um, I wouldn't say actively suicidal, but the the thoughts were there. So before he before he left to go on holiday, I gave his book back to him and I said, please take it. Um, and he says, why? I said, because if I'm back, if I'm here in two weeks, I'll take it back from you. And David was in, I think in a different life, we would have been friends, very good friends because he was hurt every time I would say things like that. Um, so I felt guilty, but it was that conversation. And in order to answer your question, it was that conversation that made me think, okay, do you know what? I'm going to try again. Um, and I kept saying myself, but this is really just the last time I'm going to try again. I, um, just need to see what happens if I pursue this, and fortunately, I have made um, a lot of progress with um, my objectives. For instance, I had written a ten-year plan, which was obviously to become a psychologist, to do a TED talk, write my, my book. Okay, I've managed to achieve that in less than three years. So I will have to then write a new ten-year um, plan or ten-year objectives to see what happens there. But in in order to answer your question, it was really that conversation. In order to give me purpose, I needed to understand which direction that I wanted to move in. Because at that moment, I was directionless. In 2016, I I was dealing with all these symptoms and I didn't understand what it was. I was hallucinating. I was hearing things. I was, uh, I'd actually say scared that I was being followed I couldn't sleep. Then I, would, I was oversleeping. I was always too tired. I'd put on weight. So it was a number of things that were, um, impacted my life in 2016 that led me to, um, the, the Maytree. But then again, in 2017, it was a case of, you know what, I am genuinely tired. This diagnosis, this illness tires me on a continuous basis. Um, even at that point, my cognitive ability was still compromised. I wasn't still able to speak, uh, eloquently. I was not able to do the things I want I'm not suggesting that I can do, I can do more now, but back then it was a lot worse. Um, so my uh, state of mind at the time was, mm, do you know what? I have done everything I could possibly do in this life. I've done more than I thought I would do. So I'm okay. And I don't want people who are listening to, to be upset by that. I'm, I'm not saddened by that. I don't feel suicide. I don't like to even use that word, but I would say people who end their lives, it's not always a bad thing. Um, it's not always a sad case. It doesn't always mean that someone's in distress or, you know, that they, they, um, are so depressed with life that they want to kill themselves. I think some people just said, you know what, I'm, I'm okay. I'm done.
0: Do you know? Do you know what I'm? I didn't think we were going to go down this this kind of path, but I, I'm actually really interested in in this discussion because uh, over the last few years, um, whether it be through people close to us or just generally observant of, um, we have a, a complete avoidance of death. We have a mm. where everyone is so afraid of death, and we've built technology and systems and institutions to keep people alive at all costs and it's Mm. not necessarily for the individual it's because we're also frightened of death and i believe death is part of life and you know at once once upon a time death was embraced death was celebrated Mm. as part of culture and right now it's something we have to avoid and um getting close to it in any capacity um is something that people should be like you know viscerally afraid of and I, I personally disagree. I look at euthanasia and I think uh, in the right circumstance, people mm. should be, as you say, have the agency to make those decisions. Now, we need to have systems in place that people don't, as you say, emotionally make the wrong decision. Absolutely. But absolutely. If, if if someone is undergoing a life of pain, physically, uh, degeneratively, psychologically, which is unresolvable, um, mm. and, and or um the future is bleak right say they've got you know end stage cancer and their body's kind of giving up on them um or someone's got alzheimer's that's someone you know personally in in my life i know someone who's got alzheimer's and their life is 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 nothing it's a shell of nothingness and they've been you know operating for the last 10 years in nothingness Mm. isolation nothingness don't doesn't know anything doesn't understand the world at all and yet we feel overwhelmed to keep the lights on for that individual whereas if they could even articulate themselves they'd probably say you know what i'm done i had a good life mm. you know i had you know kids grandkids everyone's happy everyone's progressing you know i'm by here i'm here by myself you know it's time to go and mm. i think that can and should be free choice but uh, you know I don't, I don't want to kind of go down too much of the politics of that but i agree with you that we uh, we need to do a better job of helping people come to terms of death, um, Absolutely. and and maybe this is a good pivot to the coronavirus stuff, right? It is mm. a it is a a dark and testing time. Many people, <clears throat> um, without any uh, you know, without them doing anything wrong, um, innocent individuals, their lives are being claimed before their time, before they would have liked t- to go, mm. and that's horrible and. Wouldn't wish that on anyone, and um, this is far from over. And I appreciate whilst the numbers just sound like numbers on a board, uh, and that's how we kind of we're kind of digesting this news. There is real, real destruction in people's lives, and in the wake of their uh, of them going, people are feeling the pain. So I am not trying to diminish the situation we're going through, but there is this intense fear that I think is. I think in its is it in in its own right destructive.
1: Mm. So
0: maybe we can pivot to that when we think about today and this very unique situation we find ourselves in. How mm. are you dealing with that? Right, the person who has quite eloquently described you know some situa- some you know mental issues that you you're butting up against on a daily basis. How are you processing this coronavirus pandemic? <laughs>
1: It's a very, again, another interesting question that you have, and this goes back to a conversation that I was actually having just last week. And I know a lot of people who, fortunately for them, they're still in their employment and they've not been uh, threatened with the aspect or the prospect of them losing their jobs or they've not been directly impacted by the coronavirus, by virtue of the fact that they they also do not know anybody that's been who has contracted it. But what interests me is the perspective of this current climate. They tend to think that things will change only in the future. But as I said to them, and I say to your listeners who may also have this point of view, but respectfully, things have already changed. Things are changing as you and I are speaking now, we are not waiting for change, change is waiting for us and it's, I think it's the point that we need to recognise because by understanding the extent of that change would then give us the opportunity to use that change to work to our advantage. So very similar to with my illness, it changed my life completely. Even my capacity to do things, I, I, I'm not emotionally reconciled with that, but I said, okay, well, this is my position. This is the change. What can I then do with that? So with what's going on now, all I'm doing is looking at, okay, what's going to, what is changing now? How is that going to impact me? And to what extent can I control that? So it doesn't consume me.
0: Okay. Okay, that's a logical reflection. And one, I think, probably born from the fact that you, um, putting words in your mouth, please correct if I'm wrong, Mm. you don't fear death.
1: Absolutely not. I'm used to.
0: Yeah. And I I think that's a powerful place to be. I was actually having that conversation with my wife only a couple of days ago, Jeremiah, and Mm. uh, she broke down into tears, uh, just kind of exposing her anxiety about this situation. And for mm. all intents and purposes, I think we're a robustly healthy family we're extremely isolated by virtue of where we live, and we're mm. taking all the necessary precautions so from um a reflect from a reflection on the damage economically, societally and for you know innocent individuals who who pass, I can mm. understand how it can really weigh on people's psyches. but from a personal vulnerability perspective, I believe me and my family are um not without risk but um we we hold a very good chance of not 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 contracting or or no sorry not having to deal with a negative health consequence that, that that's my personal belief and um i'm i'm sure it, i have confidence it's true but nonetheless um Michelle was struggling with this idea of leaving me the burden of having to bring up our kids um this idea that the kids need her and she doesn't want to go before her time.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: yet feeling that, that there is a possibility that could happen and having worry and anxiety about this situation coming into contact with delivery drivers who have left, you know, fragments of the virus on, 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 you know, the cardboard, like through to everything. And I'm not saying that's an unjustified view, like, okay, sterilize your, your containers and boxes that come in the house for sure. but, there, there, There is a deep-seated concern for death. And we had this out, and we had the discussion, like, if you can, li- if, imagine how liberating it could be if you accepted death as part of life, and when it happens, it happens, and how freeing that could be. And it sounds like, and it was a long-winded monologue, it sounds like, to some degree, that's the life you lead.
1: Yes, but it's, it's an interesting point, because I think... Again, I'm going to tie the current climate with your question to um, my past experience. We, We have to be realistic. It is people are contracting this illness throughout the world, okay? People are losing their jobs throughout the world. People are losing their loved ones throughout the world. Any one of us can contract it. I agree. When I, what made things more difficult for me in the past was when I was asked the a question, why me? Why me? I said, why all the time I'd say, why me? But the day I said, why not? That's when I looked at it differently. Why not me? People are, people do, like, get mm-hmm. cancer all the time. People are unfortunately struck down by lightning or cars and they die. Okay. Why not me? I mean, I'm, I'm just a another question. person. I'm just another person on this world. Why not? So I, I think in order to answer a question, the easiest way to deal with it is to accept that it can happen. This is why it's also too important to also look at, okay, well, if this change does happen, how do, how can I manage it from my position from here? Okay. If my partner does get uh, coronavirus and they die, what, can, what do I have in place? Or what can I put in place that doesn't, cause too much disruption to my family or to me. This is why it's important for us to identify this now than later. This is why I was very intrigued with the conversation that I was having last week with some of my friends because they seem not to identify that things are changing as we speak. They think, okay, well, it's, it's, it's going to happen in the future. No, it's happening now. We need to start identifying the extent to which we can control that change now because if things are changing and if things do change for you you don't want to be without a plan b oh,
0: yeah i agree man um we we worked with each other you know i just call out the, the firm we worked together at a firm called adeco which is a recruitment agent agency i had a very short stint there you wasn't there for too long either but no um in the time that we were working with one another um, I was only there for six months and um, a recruitment agent, I was explicitly in a crew management. I was working in a shop, um, dealing with passers by trying to help them find jobs. And it's um, it's a difficult job and not for everyone. Uh, and it wasn't for me. Um, and I, I quit after six months. But um, the reason I make this point is in that month's notice, I had lost the care of the outcome in terms of mm. my job. So I then went about Cold calling organizations, seeing if they had jobs, with no real concern about the outcome. You can say no, you can say yes, you can say maybe. Maybe we have an interview. I, I don't care. Like I'm just gonna ask you the question without fear of rejection. And you know what? I had the best month I was there in terms of outcomes, in terms of deliverables for um, for that um, shop. And it was it was really eye opening for me because it was. And um, there was a guy. There's a guy called uh, Geo Young uh, who talks about this as Geo Jane. Sorry, who talks about exactly the same thing, which is, um, to when you when you release yourself from the fear of rejection or the fear of failure, life becomes a lot simpler. It doesn't mean that you don't go out and pursue things that you want. Mm. It's just you don't worry about the outcome.
1: Precisely, That's and that exactly is
0: what I've, I'm hearing from you.
1: Is that right? Mm. Exactly, and that's exactly how I would have characterised your experience from within that month. It was the fact that there was a lack of fear,
0: and that that's powerful. That's powerful. If you can disconnect yourself from from the fear of this current situation, that doesn't mean be reckless. That doesn't mean don't take precautions. It doesn't mean uh, don't have some perhaps concern about the future for us mm. all and how we how we operate within it. But strip, but move, separating yourself from the fear and being productive. I feel is probably the, the best thing you can do. But it, it sounds too intellectual and not emotional, <laughs> and that's perhaps my, my my challenge. Are you are you struggling with the the effect that this could have globally, whether it be down to you know the economic environment, the opportunities, the mental health issues? I mean, I, I'm only I'm only uh, hypothesising, but I suspect this is going to have a bit of a hit on mental health globally as people are constrained, self-isolated, uh, uh, not having their social aspects, n- their identities are being stripped to some degree as they can't be, you know, the social socialite, they can't be, you know, they don't have the career necessarily at this moment in time, the, the, the way they'd like to see it. Um, there's a lot happening right now. And you're also contained with individuals that you may love, but 24-7 Mm. those relationships may become strained. How do you, do you worry about any of that stuff?
1: So uh, I'm I'm going to try to, the question was quite packed. I'll I'll do my best to try to answer all the points.
0: Sorry, man. (laughs) I I, I just monologue and then somehow just spit out. uh, Now you go.
1: Not (laughs) not, not at all. See, it's interesting because the government has said that they must protect the most vulnerable people during the pandemic. And, namely those who have underlying health uh, conditions. But in my personal opinion, the most vulnerable people during this pandemic are those who have not had any health related illnesses because those who have, like myself, are used to being confined or in isolation. I spent many years in isolation. So for me, this is no exercise. Mm -hmm. I'm more concerned for my family who are not used to being or spending 23 hours of the day in the same environment. I'm more concerned for my friends uh, or those who I support on the telephone who are not used to being um, in the same environment for uh, 23 hours. In terms of what is to come, yes, I'm not going to lie. I I'm perversely intrigued in terms of what will transpire because the way in which we interact has changed, okay? The way in which we perceive ourselves has changed. I once put a post up on uh, Instagram and it said something like, uh, three weeks ago, we were saying, be kind. And today we're now saying, I won't use the profanity, but F you, when people were panic buying. Okay, Mm -hmm. that has changed very rapidly because now people are now thinking of themselves. Okay, the way in which teachers and those who work within the NHS are viewed has changed because now parents are having to school their own children. So they are now able to understand the struggles that teachers have. And now those who work within the NHS are now more valuable. Okay, so I believe there may be some change in terms of how we value people. I think more people would appreciate those who are more intellectual than sports stars or celebrities, because unfortunately, what have they done for the pandemic? Nothing. We're now having to rely on uh, teachers who are still teaching but but online, for example, or the doctors, the scientists in order to get through this uh, crisis but also one of the things that I think will change is how we view illnesses look how quickly this uh, pandemic has spread around the world I think how we I believe or I hope to believe uh, that we become more empathetic in terms of how we view people with illnesses and that is not a in-group out-group us or them because any one of us can contract illnesses and I think this pandemic has highlighted that as well but one of the most important aspects that has interested me is the baby boom. And um, people obviously are um, procreating in this period because they're also with their partners. But the aspect which I find continues intriguing is the fact that um, divorce inquiries has um, increased. So, for example, I was reading an article, I believe in the New York Times, that some of the top New, uh, New York lawyers have um, not received, have received endless inquiries for divorce. And I think the issue with that, obviously, because, as you mentioned, um, families are spending a lot more time together or couples, married um, people spend spending a lot more time together because they're in lockdown. But what I have read, what I'm starting to identify, what seems to be the key issue is expectations. And I've always said to people that nobody can be someone's everyone. And I believe what we're beginning to realize is that we put too much emphasis on one individual, whether that is our parent or our partner, or our best friend, because we tend to want them to be our best friends. Our therapist, our life coach, or our financial advisor, which is both unrealistic and unfair, so I think what will change is how not only how we see ourselves but also other people and perhaps hopefully realize that some of the expectations that we have of ourselves and also of other people are simply unfair and also unrealistic.
0: I think that's a really, really interesting point, man. Um, you said something in in that piece about um expectation your expectations and how this is not well, water off a duck's back but relative to other people this is actually quite easy right and i would say to some degree i'm in a similar boat i work from home i spend mm. the majority of my time working from home um mm. i have spent two years seeing my wife every day uh being in the same environment and not having stories to tell as i come back from you know, this country, that country, what I used to do before, it's um, we had to get used to the sameness, the sameness and the um, monotony to some degree and find joy in the monotony and the simplicity of a life where we're both home for most of the time. Um, mm. So I've, I've had two years of practicing at this social isolation stuff. And as a result, um, yes, there are absolutely changes in our life that are um, negative and we, we would love to return to uh, a more free lifestyle, which I hope will be soon. But relative to others that I know, I know that we're probably more robust in handling this psychologically as a family than others mm. because we've we've had a lot of reps as a family staying within the house together for extended periods of time uh, without so many external stories to tell and external expectations but it's those who 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 don't have that either luxury or that or that re- desire to have a mm a largely stay at home lifestyle where you're now constrained against your will and you have expectations of social parties, restaurants, seeing mates, going to work, visiting clients, just generally having a, a varied and uh, diverse lifestyle. And now it's, you know, the, the the word is not diverse, it's the opposite of diverse.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think
0: for for those people, as you say, who, who do not have uh, conditions per se, but now they don't have the don't have the the muscle they don't have the the strength necessarily to compute and work with this new environment in which they're living in and i I agree i i see that as a potential mental health issue across our nation and globally as people are struggling with the loss of identity and the loss of structure and the loss of diversity
1: uh, and experience absolutely i think The most important, I I don't want to use that word. I say what is crucial for everybody at this point, um, is to look around them and to see what people can provide, what type of support rather than just looking at one person. Mm -hmm. So for instance, we, we've all heard that saying when they say uh, that, that saying, it takes a village to raise a child, but it doesn't change as we grow older. One person can't give us all the support we need. I agree. So we really need to be not, It'd be nice to say let's all support each other no that's not going to happen let's be realistic okay well i know that there's some people with whom if i for instance if my symptoms do uh, increase during this period okay well i'll go to my nurse okay but if i need to talk about my financial concern i could talk to this one friend okay because their capacity is perhaps more um, than the other person okay this person is a better listener so i can talk to him or her but this person gives me better advice. So I'll get this person for this. I don't ever go to one person for the yeah. same thing. And I think it's important for us to recognize, especially during this time, because we have, we have yet to see the worst of it. It's coming now. So it's important for us, whether this is uh, published before or after, um, the peak as they're referring to, but to look around us and say, okay, which are the, who are the people with whom I can go to to get the right support because now we need to individually, and we're going to need to port for many months, if not years, after this pandemic is over.
0: So, what you're saying is, okay, we need we need physical social distancing, but what we need to ensure does not does not go. If anything, it needs to be heightened. Is our kind of social proximity um, absolutely, and we should be doing that through whatever means we can. And and do you know what, without being deliberate, Jeremiah, mm. my social. Proximity has increased over the last few weeks. I've been reaching out to people that perhaps I don't often speak to, and we've been mm. talking for hours on the phone. Uh, maybe because in part we have a little bit more free time, but it feels like there's a need to get that 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 dialogue going with you know a varied set of people for them and for me. So um, I think that's great advice.
1: Absolutely, as I mentioned, one of the changes is how we interact. I started saying last week that I favour now having social. Uh, excursions with my friends using or house party. I don't I don't no longer feel the need to go I'm not suggesting I will never do it, but I'm more encouraged to say, okay, well, you get a bottle of wine at your flat, I get a bottle of wine at my flat. Hmm. Okay, let's all join into a um, house party and or Zoom and let's have a group um conversation for an hour or two hours.
0: I've not done um, that yet. Have you done that? University.
1: Yeah, I did that last week. And in fact I have a reunion this evening with a friend of mine I've not spoken to for almost 20 years. So again, nice. this this uh, this um, pandemic has made people more social because there is a lot more time. But yes, I think there's a lot more changes that are to come. Um, and I think it's important to understand uh, those changes and how they're going to impact us today, but also moving forward.
0: Whatever, Id- whatever ideas you have. So as someone who Has worked for the Samaritans, who gives counsel and support, and has worked through his own issues. What other guidance do you have right now? Uh, You know, top tips, ideas to um, prevent a—I don't know—negative mental spiral, right? Because it can happen, and and I'm seeing it everywhere. People that I know, they're just falling into anger, frustration, Mm. despair anxiety, worry, fear, mm. I mean, all the emotions. And some people are more robust than others. And some people are better expressing a positive outlook. But I know behind the behind the scenes, there's only so much people can tolerate. And if they're watching the news religiously and constantly, that's a hard thing to combat. Negative news, trying to keep a positive mind if you are a, a obsessed slash, slash addicted to the constant feed of information as it relates to this situation. Uh, I defy anyone to be able to deal with that uh, objectively and not have some kind of emotional hit. So how, what kind of guidance would you give either to yourself or to other friends in need, other people that need it most to how to navigate the next
1: couple of months? Okay. So I think most, what's most important, obviously it's interaction with other people because we're now, okay, unless Like myself, I live by myself, so I don't have to, i be isolated with anybody else. But a lot of, um, going back to what we were saying before about the divorce rates and people who are with their partners or their family, I use a technique, two techniques when I have to be in close proximity with people. Okay. One is they don't know any better. So even if I'm driving, for example, and someone almost causes a collision with my car, rather than getting angry to the point where I start rage rage, I say to myself, okay, he or she doesn't know any better. And that immediately reduces my, uh, tension. Okay. So if you are at home with your mother or your wife or your husband, and of course being around someone for so much time will get aggravating, just say, okay, if they do something simple, it's okay. This person doesn't know any better. But another technique which I've used, which has been perhaps perhaps more effective, which I'm trying to teach people, and this I learned when I went back to my parents during my initial stages of diagnosis, I have a reference point for everybody. So anybody who I know, even yourself, I have a reference point, and I often create one for everybody. And I often, it would often be a moment where I felt most empathetic for that person, or that person showed me an aspect of their vulnerability or a moment where I was happiest with that person. And in different situations where, for example, that changes, so for example, someone is trying to offend me or upset me, I'll go back to that reference point I have for that individual. And again, it reduces my tension. So I have one for absolutely everybody. So I have been with my mother, for example, sometimes she does upset me, she doesn't mean to do so. But rather than for me to react, I respond with, okay, so let me get back to that reference point mm. and I'll t- t- take, I'll take my, I take myself psychologically to that point in time and then it then reduces, um, any tension. But in terms of dealing with this from a universal perspective, it's important for people to write. I'd say, what i find with most people whether it's people who i'm trying to counsel or if i'm samaritans um friends or family is that they allow their minds to be congested with too much information and they keep it there it's important to write what's in your mind or at least pull it somewhere so you can see it so even if, if writing is not your thing okay then draw it okay it's better to eject it rather than to maintain it in your head So for me, it's important for me to write in my reflections book every single weekend. Uh, So I use Sunday to do that. But every single day I'll make notes in my uh, telephone, in in, in one of the notepads. I just make notes. If I'm I'm thinking something or I'm feeling something, I will write it there. In fact, my book that I'm writing now, 90% of that have come from notes. And it talks about how I'm feeling. So if I've, if I've had an episode where I've been confused, I'm simply just taking the notes, which I wrote at that moment in time. And that's putting that in the book. So I'm not making up and saying, oh, I felt like this at that time. No, that's how I was I was writing exactly what was going on in my head. And even still to today, I write everything so I can see it in front of me um, what's going on in my head. So I don't become overwhelmed with what is going on in my head.
0: I love that. I love that. I've, I do some journaling, uh, mostly public, if I'm honest. Uh, mm. And some people use social media as a form of release. How do you feel about that? So if it's either public, or you're putting it on social media, now now you've got a filter. Mm. Now you've got a, perhaps maybe some people more fun- confidently vulnerable than others, and they're willing to be truly expressive and are comfortable with the judgment that may be placed upon them through being completely open and honest. But I find that normally, on social mm. media, people say what they think other people want to hear. So do you find that that's a bit of a kind of double-edged sword in using, say, social media as a form of expression? And 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 as you said, I love that term, ejection of your kind of thoughts and emotions.
1: No, I, I, I'm often... <laughs> I am, what's what I'm trying to say? I am interested in those that do, because I always ask myself, what was the motivation? So in most things that I do, I'll always ask myself, what was the motivation? So for me, if somebody is going through a just distressing just period and they take that to social media, The question I immediately asked myself was what was the motivation? Does that person want external validation? Does that that person want sympathy from other people? Why on social media? Why not go to your best friend or your family member? I don't believe. I think what social media has done is made us weaker. So we become more dependent on the opinions of other people. Mm. We rely on feeling great about ourselves by how many likes we get or how many times it's been shared. Okay. It's important for us to, if we are going through times of distress, is to share it with those who know us best, who will understand it more empathetically, who will be able to talk to us from a sympathetic perspective and share it with the world. Because I don't understand, I can understand the motivation as to why people do that, but I don't believe it actually helps them. I believe it actually hinders them. Because
0: one, there's a filter, two, Mm. you're doing it to some degree, you're thinking about, um uh, how this is being received uh, versus if you're writing privately you don't care about how it's been received this is the ugly deepest most clumsy writing but it doesn't matter the reality is you're mm. just exposing and or, or ejecting out those feelings whereas when you put it on social media i don't i don't care who you are to some degree you are conscious of how it's being received and that mm. may take away part of the uh, therapeutic benefit i guess and then as you say there's What about if people respond negatively or don't respond at all? Does that now, do you now take an emotional hit because of this?
1: Precisely. I believe he who tells everyone tells no one because you're only ever going to tell an aspect of what you're really thinking and feeling because you've put it to the world. Mm. So what you're detailing may not be raw or actually genuine. I think most people would be encouraged, as you said, to publish something that, or perhaps provoke a response or be based on something that people actually want to read and hear. Yeah. So again, like I said, I always look at the motivations as to why people do that.
0: I like that. What about mindfulness, man? Do you do any form of emptying or, or clearing of the mind, not just through journaling? I know journaling is a productive um, form of mindfulness, but do you meditate Do you kind of try and use the default mode network of just like walking around without a plan, without an objective and just letting things just like chill? You got any systems or processes like that?
1: No. So I have tried. um, I've tried that. Unfortunately, it doesn't work for me. But what I do afford myself is to sit there sometimes um, for between 15, 20 minutes just to understand what is going on in my mind. So I'm not focused on anything. I'm just allowing my thoughts just to go through. And for me, I always have this mental image of swimming through my thoughts. So I allow them to um, go around because at the moment there's no objective there. There's no clear motivation, okay? I'm sat here, laying here for any particular motive. If, if anything like that, you've been falling asleep. But for me, it's just to allow the thoughts just to have their way Okay, just that so is so mindfulness,
0: can... man. But that is right. That's not meditation. That's not trying to empty your mind. That's just trying to disconnect from the thoughts and let them be. That is mindfulness. I would say, to a, a, say a, a one 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 of the means of disconnecting from the rum, rumination, because uh, that's really the the dark darkness mm. of thought, isn't it? It's the yeah, rumination. I, I
1: would, yeah, I would say that I, I agree with you on that perspective. Yes. Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay, so so you you just kind of sit sit yourself in a room and just without trying to purposely direct your thoughts, you just let them be and see where it takes you. Mm,
1: yes, precisely.
0: Okay, okay, that's interesting, man. Um, we're we're drawing to a close of this discussion, Jeremiah. It's been absolutely fantastic, but I just want to make sure that you feel that you've expressed everything that you wanted to. Um, have we offered enough to the audience in terms of things that they can reflect or do? Uh, to navigate the next few months for them personally? Is there anything else that you would have hoped that we would have covered?
1: Um, to be sincere, I think we've been very thorough um, with this conversation, more thorough than I anticipated. So. <laughs> That's my <laughs> so, MO, unfortunately. <laughs> so I don't um, believe there is anything else that we could discuss more. What about um,
0: identity? Because I know you speak eloquently about identity your ted talk was exactly about uh, identity and labels which i thought was brilliant by the way
1: thank you very much is there
0: is there an identity crisis afoot with um, separation from job the separation from social status the separation from life as we know it through this period of time do you anticipate any kind of identity type issues occurring for individuals and how how would they consider trying to combat that
1: A multitude, actually, a multitude of identity issues are going to transpire for the next few months, perhaps for the next 18 months, because uh, as a society, we've become attached to objects and services, Mm -hmm. and at the moment, we don't have access to that. We are losing our jobs. So people who once valued themselves as high earners are now being made redundant, okay? Um, People are unable to... Utilizes services that they would do so frivously. For, for instance, myself, I would see my barber, my hairdresser, once a week. I've not been able to see him for two weeks. So even I am cautious of being on a uh, video conference, for example. What I think is essential in this period, and what I think we will see a lot of, I that this whole pandemic will humble people because it has stripped it is slightly starting to strip everything away slowly mm. even for the things took for granted going out for a drink with our friends going out just to, to our, our friends after dinner uh, working or working late or working from home now people are having to work from home every single day it is going to strip us bare if it hasn't done so already by those who have attached themselves to material objects and services and i think this is part of the, this is what the point I was trying to make before. Now is the time for us to understand the extent to which this change we can control and how we want that to look like in the future or in the next few days or the next few weeks or in the next few months, whenever this is over, because it has changed everything for us for how we will understand ourselves, but also other people.
0: And is there, is there a, a response to people struggling with, um, I guess the the um, disparity between the identity they have held and the identity they currently have, or, or or their perceived threat to their identity, are there any any ways to reconcile that and um, think through that? I mean, I, I guess the point I'm making is you spoke eloquently about labels and identities mm. in your TED talk, and mm. I feel that's very relevant now. How do we take some of that discussion? And apply that now to people as they think about okay i've I haven't got that you know I am unable to express myself through authority and charisma of my sales job because I'm not out selling mm. I'm unable to as you say get my hair cut and therefore I'm not the sharp dapper guy at the moment I'm wearing sweats every day um uh, you know i'm I'm not the socialite that i I love you know I'm out five times a week and now it's zero um who am I and how do I, I, how do I deal with that?
1: Then I think it, the the first question one needs to ask himself is, do are all these things or do these things make me happy? Because this is where I went wrong in 2015. I was trying to hold on to something that I was no longer. I was no longer the editor-in-chief of a magazine. I was no longer on the front row of Fashion Week. Mm. I was no longer a socialite. I was no longer being asked by restaurants to come and eat for free just so I can write a review. The most um important aspect well I think that one that helped me and continues to help me is to understand where my values are. Okay. Is who I am, is that consistent with my values? Okay, because I think that's what's going to be very important in the for that throughout the next few months. Okay. How do my values sit with me today? And how will they sit with me in the future? Okay. Are they consistent with who I want to be? I think that's what's going to um provoke a lot of change or, as I say, provoke a lot of thought within ourselves is to understand who we are by trying to understand if the ideal version of ourselves or the person who we want to be is consistent with who we actually are or the people or the person who people perceive us to be.
0: Mm, that's it's deep and complicated, isn't it? And um, Very probably difficult. quite difficult to navigate mm. um, without some experience in doing so i mean just as a a, a final point in case um we we go on quite a few holidays as a family we've had we've been blessed with the you know the the opportunity and freedom to do so over the last Mm. decade or so as a family and it's been great but I've, i've always come back from my holidays saying and i use this term fairly frequently but the holiday didn't live up to the brochure Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, you know, we've gone to Australia, we've gone to, uh, you know, all parts of the Caribbean, we've gone to America, we've gone to parts of Europe, um, we've gone to Disney World, and they were all great, honestly great. And I can reflect on the positive moments for sure, 100%. But there is a slight emptiness that happens during and immediately afterwards where the, the idyllic view of what that holiday would be didn't manifest itself. You know, it was hard, we were tired, you know, it was, it was more intense than I expected. We didn't have the, you know, we had arguments, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And as I reflect on that now, I'm thinking, okay, I'm not going to have a holiday this summer. Mm. Mm. And how do I feel about that? And I'm at, I'm at peace with that because I guess I've become at peace with the fact that I don't need holidays to be happy. Mm-hmm. And I probably reached that conclusion a year ago, and I sent it to my wife. I said, "You know, we bought a new car last year. We went on a holiday last year, and I'm like, I know what's going. I know, I know, I'm going to feel pretty meh about it. It was like, cool, fine, great, mm-hmm. move on. Whereas the moments I've most thoroughly enjoyed over the last twelve months have been the sunny day in our garden, barbecue out, kids around the table, cooking up some food, sitting around, smiling, dog running around, playing some frisbee." We've spent next to nothing, we're at home, we're together, mm-hmm. we're with each other's company. And they're the, they're the moments, they're the moments I actually remember as highlights of last year, not necessarily the holidays. And I think if we can, if we can do that, if we can, from an identity perspective, say, what, as you say, what are our values? What things actually deep down take away the modern life expectations, the societal expectations, but deep down, what are those moments over the last 12 months that really lit me up I think more often than not, you'll find that the essence of that moment, whether it was in a different country or in your backyard, is one of connection and one of connection with nature perhaps or connection with yourself. And if we can do that over the next few months, I think we'll find actually perhaps even more moments to be happy. But we need to go seeking that versus being concerned about what we have lost.
1: Absolutely. I think this is the perfect time for us to or for those who feel the need to, to reinvent themselves. They have the opportunity and very often, very very rarely, but rarely, sorry, or seldomly, do we get the opportunity to do that. We've now been given the opportunity to become who we want to be. And if that sits with, yeah. if who you want to be is consistent with your values, then do that. Again, I'll get back to the map. You can say, this is where I am now. And then you draw on a piece of paper and box at the top of the page and say, that's where I want to be. And then you just draw a map in terms of what you would need to do to achieve that or who you would need to meet or what you would need to learn. And you just follow that map throughout your month, year, whatever your objective is in terms of time frame. And you did it progressively. But now is the opportunity for you to, to become who you truly want to be. And I think, unfortunately, the, although it has been on, um, involuntarily, but the pandemic has given everybody an opportunity to be who they truly want to be.
0: Oh, love that. Love that as a close. Reinvention and auto-correction. This is Absolutely. nature auto-correcting. This is society auto-correcting. And as an individual level, it's an opportunity to reinvent. Reinvent what is important. Because I believe, get on my soapbox for a second, perhaps we've allowed modern life to just run ahead way beyond what we necessarily need with mm. this kind of capitalist kind of view that we always need more and faster and better.
1: Absolutely. And now
0: is a chance to reflect on what do we actually need at a human level, at a mm. deep level? What is it that we value? And can we get that in a more simple life? Because if we can do that now over the next three months and come out of this relatively unscathed as an individual, what does that say about how you can live the rest of your life? Perhaps more you know, stronger, with stronger emotion, with deeper purpose, perhaps with less. And Mm. I think we all need to have a little bit less in our lives. And this is perhaps kind of forcing that. It's a forcing function.
1: Absolutely. Cool. All
0: right. And Jeremiah, thank you so much for today. This was really, you know, enjoyable, deeply enjoyable. Thank you for your time. Can you give us, um, can you just kind of point people towards the resources that you would like them to go take a look at if they're interested in, you know, your work um, or where to find you, where to connect with you. So let's, let's talk about where to find your, your I, TEDx talk and book and various other things that they can have a look at.
1: So at present, um, my talk is, uh, on YouTube under my name, Jeremiah Oze22. I will link uh, that comes up immediately. Um the book has yet to be published, unfortunately. Um I won't the pandemic has slowed things down, but um when that is out, you'll be first uh, whom who I would communicate that to.
0: Okay. And are you on social media? Do you have a website? Do you have a means of people connecting with you?
1: Of course, I'm on Instagram and Facebook, but not for long. That's the reason <laughs> why I haven't given that. I joined social media only in January after four or four, five years. Okay. And in the short period of time I've had it, I just thought, I was a lot better off not having it. So it will be going down soon, to be Fair honest. Fair
0: enough. You. And you know what? There's there's some wisdom and there. there's, there's something to reflect on as individuals. Cool. Mm. Uh, Jeremiah, thank you so much for today. I wish you thank all you the stay. best health mentally and physically over the coming months thank you for your leadership your grace and your poise uh, and your generosity uh, to others who need it in this time and um yeah hopefully we can keep in contact and you know continue to enlighten each other it has been thoroughly enjoyable
1: absolutely also for me steve thank you very much for your time
0: thank you man If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And, of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.